Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I'm welcoming you back to yet another B-side episode. Before we get into that, some housekeeping. Of course, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. And I also wanted to say, on top of rating, which really helps the show get in front of more people, spread the word however you can. I would so appreciate any social media shares, texting your friends, whatever it is, anyone that you think might be interested in the show, spreading the word. Really appreciate you guys getting the word out there about the show. Actually, on our Spotify wrapped, which came out last week, we learned that we are in the top 1% of podcasts globally in terms of shares, in terms of people sharing the show, which is mind-blowing. So thank you guys so much for doing that. And please continue if you are passionate about a certain episode or you think the show might be interesting to your friends. Let them know. We really appreciate that. Check out the Spotify playlist for all of our episodes in the show notes of the episodes. And also please subscribe to our Patreon, Pop Pantheon All Access. I know I've been ringing the bell about this on every episode, but it's really exciting. And one of the most enticing perks, I think, is that if you join at the Icon tier, we're giving out bonus podcast material. We just dropped a new episode. It dropped last week. It is me and Pop Pantheon fave Dunzo's Troy McKeady doing an in-depth deep dive into Britney Spears' blackout. And as a treat at the end of this episode, I will be including a little clip from that one so you can get a taste of what we're doing on Patreon. This episode was so much fun to make. Obviously, Blackout is such a huge album for so many people. And it was so fun to get to just spread out over the course of an hour, talk about all the music, all of the narrative surrounding the record, the path it's taken from commercial quote-unquote underperformer to being a cult classic to now being seen as one of the best pop albums of all time and certainly of Britney's career. It was just a delightful and insightful and just very enjoyable episode to record and we've gotten amazing feedback on it. So stay tuned after this episode to listen to a preview of the Blackout episode from our Patreon Pop Pantheon All Access. And if you like it, hit the link in the show notes of this episode or go to patreon.com slash poppantheon and join up to hear that and more incredible bonus content because we have so much good stuff planned. Next up in Patreon land, we are having an exclusive album listening party for SZA's new album, SOS, which drops tonight. So if you're listening to this now and you are a patron, we are going to be in the Discord tonight when SOS drops at 9 p.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, listening in tandem together and chatting about our first reactions to SZA's long-awaited second album. So if you're a patron, join us in the Discord. If you want to join us for that and you're not a patron, sign up for Patreon. So excited for that. See you guys tonight for the SZA album release listening party in the Discord. And lastly, on the Patreon front, I want to shout out our latest five patrons. That would be Troy M., Sean G., excuse me if I'm mispronouncing your name, Ronnie P., Kate F., and Armando M. Thank you guys so much for subscribing, and thank you everybody that subscribed. We are completely blown away by how many people have joined this Patreon, and I hope you guys are enjoying it. Don't forget to check out our merch hat at poppantheonpod.com. Our niche legend dad hat is still on sale for the holidays, and this is also our final call for voice notes about Pantheon tier disputes. Guys, People are constantly DMing me, commenting on our page on Instagram, like really upset about tier rankings. And that's not where those should go. Those should go in a voice note, in an email to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. And we will play them on air and react to them on air and take what you say very, very seriously. So last call, if you are upset about a Pantheon ranking from this year, not 2021, from 2022, shoot us a voice note, poppantheonpod at gmail.com. And we just might play it on air. So this episode is about imperial phases. Now, that's a topic that comes up a lot on the show. It's a concept that was originally raised by the Pet Shop Boys Neil Tennant, but really codified into an idea in pop musical discourse by Tom Ewing in a piece he wrote for Pitchfork back in 2010 called Imperial. For anyone that doesn't know, the idea of an imperial phase is an era in a pop star's career where they get so big, they're so titanic in culture, what they're doing is so fascinating and is also being so widely and well 
well received by pop culture more broadly that they enter a very brief period where they can do no wrong whether what they're putting out is consistently good or not etc it all is successful because they are just so incredibly saturating and so dominant in pop culture at that particular moment. Not every pop star has one. A good example, I think, for members of this audience might be Lady Gaga from, let's say, Bad Romance through Born This Way, a period where anything she did was a hit. Everything was a pop cultural touchstone. No matter whether people actually ended up thinking it was good or not, it all felt huge. So imperial phases are things that pop stars can have, they don't always have, and this conversation is with Tom Ewing himself, the man who basically codified the entire idea. And we talk about imperial phases so much, they're so relevant to the pop pantheon because whether or not a pop star has had an imperial phase or if they are having one or et cetera, et cetera, is something that I think comes up almost you know every few episodes or so. So I asked Tom to come on. We have such a fun conversation. He was a delight, a font of knowledge. And of course, I just started grilling him on like every pop star I could think of about whether they've had an imperial place, when it was, if there's major pop stars that have managed to have long careers without having an official imperial phase. We also talk about how the idea of the imperial phase has perhaps evolved over time. Now that monoculture is so much less prevalent, is it still possible to have an imperial phase in the same way that it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, etc.? So it was a delightful conversation. I am so excited for you guys to hear it. So without further ado, here is my talk about imperial phases with the brilliant Tom Ewing. And don't forget to stay tuned after the music rolls at the end of the episode for a clip of our Blackout Patriot episode. <laughs> All right, so I'm here with pop writer Tom Ewing, Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Hi. <laughs> Hi. A pleasure to have you. We talk about your article for Pitchfork, your legendary article, Imperial, on this podcast mm, every third episode, I would say. Oh, so wow. this is okay. truly an honor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much you know about our show, but the show is essentially about pop stardom. Yeah. So usually every episode we focus on a single pop artist and we dissect their whole career and discography. And then we rank them in this system of tiers called the pop pantheon, hence the name of the show. Okay. So we discuss the idea of imperial phases all the time. What counts as one? What doesn't count as one? Who's had one? Who hasn't had one? Yeah. How do we know if somebody's having one or not? So I really thought it would be instructive to have you come on the show right from the horse's mouth and... Right, Tell right. us about Imperial Phases. So I'm thrilled to have you here. The horse, obviously, is Neil Tennant, uh, rather than... Sure, rather sure, than sure. Well, me, he but... wasn't available, so I <laughs> had to go for you, Tom. Yeah, he's a busy man. And I, I mean, I don't know whether he has any idea that this thing has become, this thing that he kind of tossed off in the liner notes of his actually re-release. Did he ever acknowledge the piece to you? Yeah, I think he retweeted it, actually. But I think he retweeted it. I thought, I think the Pet Shop Boys official account retweeted it back in the day. But that is partly because uh, it mentioned the Pet Shop Boys. So it was kind right. of like, okay, here's something mentioned in the Pet Shop Boys that isn't, I assume there's some level of quality control because God knows I've mentioned the Pet Shop Boys often enough without getting a retweet. But um, <laughs> so he may have read it. He may not have read it. I don't know. Well, maybe that's a good way for us to jump off into yeah. how you got inspired to write your piece, Imperial. Again, this was in 2010, yeah. but it's become the word Imperial phase as a result of your piece. Ultimately, I know you were taking the idea from Neil Tennant, but the piece codified, at least in the sort of music journalist community the notion of an imperial phase and it's now become just part of the lexicon a common parlance that we talk yeah, about. yeah 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 how did you it's... become inspired to i guess graph out what an imperial phase is after hearing neil Tennant's quote i think the thing that i liked about it was the self-consciousness with which he was talking about it right. it's unusual for a pop artist to look back on their career and to say well look this is the point at which we were very successful but obviously what he was doing wasn't just saying you know we were very successful you can look at the chart statistics and the sales figures and you can tell when someone's being successful he was saying something else mm -hmm. which is this is the point at which we could do no wrong mm. even when we did something crap like the it couldn't happen <laughs> here film um right it still was shown on like national tv at christmas time and people liked it and people watched it so it's this sense that sort of okay it's this kind of feedback loop between an artist finding a higher gear 
and the public responding to that gear. And it's a sort of dance, a kind of like high velocity dance between an artist and the public, which lasts until either the public get bored or the artist can't maintain the pace. And it happens very much in public. And I think I liked it because at the time I was very, well, and now I was very into, you know, the column was called Poptimist. It was all about what is a pop approach? What is a pro-pop approach to criticism? And Imperial Phase is a way of talking about artistic development of Mm. a star, but one that includes the audience. So it includes the fact that this is happening in public. It's part of the kind of public profile of the artist and i think a lot of the time when we talk about artistic development the songwriter goes off and it's like a sort of meditative process it's seen as which i don't think any songwriter would actually say yeah it's like that or not you know but they kind of go off and they're doing their thing and then they emerge with a finished artistic work and i think the imperial phase it's a more kind of pop-oriented idea of development. It's a more singles-oriented idea of development. It's fast. And it just seemed a more kind of exciting way of thinking about that. It's interesting to hear you talk about the meeting of the commercial and the artistic because that is pop-specific in a certain way. Like pop both has to have some form of artistic value, but also can't exist in a vacuum. Like pop music, by dint of being pop music, popular, whatever, has to be in some sort of commercial context as well. And you mentioned in the piece that this really applies to pop music in a way that it doesn't apply necessarily to alternative music or to other forms of music, particularly for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it can apply to alternative music. I think that a very good example of an imperial phase, which had massively consequential outcomes, is the Nirvana imperial phase Mm. from smells Mm. like teen spirit probably to the end of that album cycle when they deliberately said we don't want to do this anymore we don't want to be like this anymore we don't want to be in this constant kind of dialogue They chose to get out of it. Yeah, or they tried to get out of it. Right, but isn't Nirvana also instructive in the sense that with Nevermind, they, I don't know if the right word is, was attempting to have mainstream success. I don't think any of them knew that that was coming on that level, but let's say they were making more pop-oriented music on Nevermind, and then In Utero, just by dint of the success of Nevermind, was so humongous in a way that it probably wouldn't have been without Nevermind coming first. Isn't that kind of a reflection of how Imperial Faces work in a sense? Like, no matter what they had done next, it was going to be huge. I don't think they could, I think they wanted to get out of the Imperial Phase, and I think they couldn't, and maybe that's part of the tragedy of that band. Right. The quote about the Beatles, there was nowhere to go but down, but the Beatles couldn't get down. Mm. There's a point where if you're not sort of able to deal with being an Imperial Phase and that people still want you to be in one or whatever, it can get very difficult. But I think that's a really good point, because I think that one of the things that, when I was reading your questions and, and sort of trying to revisit the idea, I'm thinking well can you launch with an imperial phase right and i don't want to say okay you can't right because you talk a lot in the piece about a lot of it is about building up to an imperial phase yeah yeah i think there's a kind of leveling up Mm. thing where there's got to be a degree of attention on you anyway and then right you suddenly do something that makes people think wow i didn't know they could do this right this is really taking it to the element of of pleasant surprise or something yeah it's more like a sort of power up in a video game like suddenly you're going Mm. twice as fast suddenly you're kind of able to do things that you haven't necessarily done before and the switch sorry all my examples are are terribly rockist but something like bowie (laughs) bowie had been knocking around for years just making records building up a following and then suddenly he goes on top of the pops as ziggy playing starman and he's sort of you know magicked up an imperial phase into being where he's created himself and suddenly like everyone notices everyone knows who he is and there's this buzz and that's also then what defines the rest of his career It was really illuminating to me that when he died, obviously the critics, they all had their favorite phases and their things, but the visual, which is often where you look for the evidence Mm. of an imperial phase, like a Mm. kind of fossil record, Mm. the visual is the Ziggy era lightning bolt. Right. That's such a good point. Like a way to denote the imperial phases, like how are they enshrined in history on the Mount Rushmore of their career? Like what's the image that's in our mind of them forever? That's really interesting. So you were talking about, just so we can sort of lay this out very clearly for anyone that isn't clear. So we talked about the imperial phase it's a meeting of a moment in a pop career let's say between somehow an artist having instinctually the finger on the pulse of what pop 
culture slash music needs writ large and then the public receiving that as intended essentially <laughs> like yeah it's yeah. some sort of combination of those two ideas that basically an artist gets to a point and I think you lay this out very clearly. Like there are many pop stars that have successful careers that don't necessarily ever have an imperial phase. They're short-lived, as you said, and they don't come along that frequently is the vibe that I get. They're yeah. infrequent, yeah. both yeah. for artists and in pop culture more largely. But they're essentially a period where certain pop stars get to a place for a short period of time where they're just too big to fail. Is that like essentially like if you had to boil it down, like yeah. there's nothing that they can do in that particular moment. As you said, they could release the shittiest song, crappiest music video, whatever it is. They are just so zeitgeisty that there's just absolutely nothing they could do that wouldn't be successful. That's basically the idea. Yeah, that's kind of it. And I think like, can you have an imperial phase where you're actually releasing stuff that is bad? I think there initially needs to be a kind of artistic step forward. I you, see. You need to be. I got you. You need to be on top of your game, and it's got to be the right game for the public. But once it's rolling, once it's rolling, you yeah, then yeah, have yeah, yeah, some yeah. sort it's... of carte blanche to like fuck up. Yeah. Without anybody noticing. Yeah. Up to a point but you don't know when that thing is going to hit so like the original when the snag when you're going to kind of go when the imperial phase is going to end right to go back to the pet shop boys they put out yeah. this terrible film and it didn't do them any harm at all and they still had the christmas number one that year and then they put out domino right. dancing which they were extremely proud of yeah and that ended the imperial phase because the public were like no i don't care i don't want the pet shop boys to do some latin freestyle right <laughs> <laughs> But like in a certain moment, they could have done the Latin freestyle. Like if they were in the midst of the imperial phase, and it probably still would have worked. It's some sort of combination yeah. of time, also, because right. I think if they put it out when they put out Heart, say, or What If I, it would have done as well as Heart or What If I, because that was the level of excitement around who they were and what they were doing. So imperial phases seem to me to be intrinsically tied to the idea of a monoculture, and I'm going to be interested a little bit with you to talk about when you think imperial phases began, or like who had the first imperial phase and then yeah. maybe at the end of the conversation I would love to talk about if they are harder to achieve in our fragmented niche pop cultural landscape these days where monocultural pop events feel fewer and far between at least in my opinion so I'll be interested yeah. to talk to track the evolution of that a little bit with you but let's start with the first thing where do you see the idea of an imperial phase first emerging like if you had to look back at pop history like who had the first if you had to take a gander I mean one thing is that I don't know enough about 30s and 40s i don't know whether sure. someone would have looked at say frank sinatra right in yeah, in the right. 40s getting mobbed or whatever right. and thought right this is an imperial i mean they wouldn't have thought this is an imperial phase but they would have thought you know this is incredible he keeps getting better and better and the public keep liking it more and more and when's it going to stop right like, when's the thing right but i think that what you need for imperial phases to make sense as a concept is you've got to have an idea that you can have non-imperial phases within a pop career so right you've got to be able to say okay someone can be unsuccessful for or like not unsuccessful kind of build up fairly slowly for like three years and then suddenly hit a hot streak and then kind of accelerate into it and i think you also need to have if everyone's being expected to only last two years and if everyone's being worked almost to death which is the situation you get more so in the kind of 50s and 60s right where there's this you know circuits of perpetual work right like releasing albums every six months for instance yeah yeah so clearly the beatles in some sense is all imperial right. phase but also to some extent their success is what creates the conditions for you to be able to say well look this is a period where like you know dylan is just chilling in his wood cabin and this is a period where dylan is the center of pop culture or whatever right dylan is another whose success yeah. kind of creates that right you need to have that kind of expanded idea you need people to be famous for what they're doing as opposed to just who they are there needs to be a sense that that, look, this pop music stuff is art on some level or is mm. or is something beyond just commercial pop. Oh, I see. So, like, would you qualify, like, the Supremes from, like, 1964 to 1970 as an imperial phase of some sort? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I say that because I wonder in, like, the raucous climate of the 60s whether the Supremes had the cred necessary, but it felt like there was at least a period of time where every single song they released was humongous like they yeah. had five number one hits in a row in america and like felt like kind of an endless run for at least like four or five years in there of like pretty much everything they did was successful
maybe that doesn't hit it because they don't have the rockest cred that you're saying that they need? Possibly, yeah. It's also like, are the public engaging with them on the sense of, I can't wait to see what the Supremes do next. I can't wait to hear the next right. Supreme single. I think that right. Motown perhaps could have sold them in ways that did put that autonomy front and center. But the impression I always get with Motown, I, I'm not, I don't want to kind of speak too broadly about it because it's not something I've dug into as a, a mm -hmm. pop historian. But the, the whole was generally greater than the parts with Motown. I see, I see. So it's almost like Motown had an imperial phase more so than any of the individual yeah. acts themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mo but like in the Motown boardroom, they would have wanted Motown to be the takeaway. Right. More nice than just like, obviously all the Motown acts are important and clearly the Supremes have more cachet than say the Velvetettes. Sure. But I think that like they were very much a kind of brand first thing, which I don't think is the case across Soul. I guess you could look to James Brown and that period. He may indeed have been one of the first people to have more than one, but that period between Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, where he switches up into that kind of heavier, more minimalist funk sound and just kind of runs with that. If you had to say, thinking from like 1980 on in particular, just because I know my yeah. audience is going to be focused on like the pop stars that follow the Michael Madonna Prince era of pop star. Yeah. What are some really primo examples of classic center of the bullseye imperial phases like in that particular era of pop? I mean, Prince is a good place to start. I think, again, yeah. the big clue as to when it is, is what he's known for visually, which is purple. Right. So purple rain. So it's Purple Rain. But I think I think his kind of purple period probably starts with 1999 and mm -hmm. then continues through Purple Rain. But he's very interesting because I think that he definitely has an imperial phase. There's a point at which the imperial phase ends, but there's a kind of quite a long tail of he's still the most respected or probably the most respected and admired and critically beloved and still successful pop musician in the US. Like all the stuff that he's yes. doing from Parade, Sign of the Times, Love Sexy. Yeah, but less commercially successful. Yeah, a little bit. Like I think that his imperial phase ends with Around the World in the Day. Right. But then he doesn't kind of like come down out of it fully. He's still up there. He's still the center of but pop. But is that sort of like a common thing with them? Like once you've had an imperial phase, does that grant you, even if you're not having one ongoing, some form of long tail commercial success? Like even if it's not on the level of an imperial phase? Like I was thinking about this with Lady Gaga as a good example, like in a yeah. modern context of someone who like definitely had one and like maybe to your earlier point had one from the jump. I kind of think of Gaga's imperial phase. Maybe it like really began with bad romance, but like in the way that she exploded, I guess maybe it's a good example because she was really, really big with that first album and then bad romance just like launched things into like the stratosphere in that same way you were talking about like the acceleration happening. But it's almost as if she's been running on fumes commercially from that moment since then, basically, like without ever really yeah. like having that same grip on culture again. I think it took her a long time to have that kind of second and third act. She's now probably like more respected than she was for quite a time in the tens. But she doesn't have the commercial. No, no, not at all. She's never hit another imperial phase again like that. Like, there's no question to me that bad romance, telephone, like that whole yeah. run through the fame monster and then into like maybe the beginning of Born This Way, like through the Born This Way era, it probably constitutes her imperial phase ultimately, yeah. right? No, I would, I would totally agree. And I think that's a very good example of one. I think that that had quite a kind of short lead in. I still think it had a lead in because I think that around the time yeah. of Poker face and just dance a lot of the yeah. conversation about her wasn't she's fascinating and this is brilliant pop it was like wow who is this weirdo she had to kind of overcome all this raucous suspicion loads of kind of right. rumors about she had to fight um, for the cred yeah right, right. and then suddenly bad romance comes out and it's just this undeniable thing like you can't hear bad romance and think oh yes, this is just mediocre nonsense or whatever. You know, it, it becomes much harder to, to stain that objection. Yeah, right. I got you. Okay, so that's like a pretty good example of one, aside from the fact that the ramp up feels shorter than oh, yeah. usual. I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was definitely quite short. Is Madonna instructive in terms of a really slow build ramp up? Is Madonna's first imperial phase true blue through Vogue kind of? I think it's earlier. Like, I think Like a Virgin starts it. Like a virgin. 
I would say that she had two. I think she's one of the few who has two. Right. She has the 84 to 86 one, where she kickstarted an Imperial phase by being very sexual, confrontational pop star. Mm-hmm. Had mm-hmm. that Imperial phase through the Desperately Seeking season, where it was like everyone wanted to know what she was doing, everyone wanted to know who she right. was with, everyone wanted to know what the next song would be like. The songs were very hot. So many hits, yeah, like endless. True hits. Blue. Yeah. And then it kind of falls off a bit. And 87 to 88, it's a sort of fallow time. I think that the sort of Shanghai surprise era mm. and the kind of causing a commotion and but who... no major albums released in that yeah, period no no so... no major album but she's doing stuff and the stuff isn't getting quite the heat so i think right. i think you I could see. look at that from an imperial phase lens and think well she's losing it okay right so if she were in the heat of an imperial phase in that moment even her like lucy singles from soundtracks would be hits, yeah. Basically. yeah 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 okay. and then she comes back and does it again and also does it again like in exactly the same way by being sexual and controversial but to like an even greater degree so she's sort of the queen right. of the imperial phase in that she managed to do it twice in the same way More cred the second time, though. I think, yeah. Right? More artistic credibility in the second one. Yeah, yeah. So you could say that the second one is like the greater one or the truer one or whatever, but definitely that kind of like a right. prayer to probably to justify my love. Right, because like she was able to spin hits off of erotica that probably wouldn't have been hits without the fumes of that era. Yeah. Off of it. But then erotica is seen as such a big commercial come down, so that's got to be the end of the second one, obviously, like as a whole era. The end is probably sex. The book, right, yeah. right, right, right. Uh, but I, like, right. if you want a sort of definition of imperial phase, a pop star can make I'm breathless and get away with it. Right, I see what you're saying. You know. Right, that's, <laughs> that's instructive. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So how do you think about, I'm like so interested in like going so to, through so many specific examples of you. Like, how do you think about Michael? Because Michael basically like had nonstop monster albums through the whole 1980s. Like, is that yeah. one imperial phase or is it only thriller? Or is it only bad? I I think like thriller is so successful it almost kind of breaks the thing because everyone's expecting another thriller so the attention the extent to which michael's the center of the culture is always there people are always ready for him to be it again yeah right and thriller has the classic as you've been pointing out like sort of expansion of the he was huge with off the wall but then like thriller took everything from off the wall and like kicked it into ten thousand gear you know what i mean The other thing with him is that unusually for 80s acts, obviously right. his album release cycle is very slow. Right, exactly. That's kind of the big, one of the big differences now, that if you don't have that kind of accelerated work rate, it's much harder to work out when something ends. Oh, interesting, interesting. I think one of the things that can be difficult, especially with that in this context is, what is just succeeding because an artist is in their imperial phase and what is just kind of organically succeeding because they just happen to hit something really good twice? You know what I mean? Like, yes. it was bad part of Thriller's Imperial phase vibe, or was it just that he, like, happened to hit the zeitgeist again with those songs on their own merits, in a sense, if that makes sense? You know, that can be hard to decipher. I would say that Michael Jackson's he's almost like the first modern pop star. What you have yeah, now, I realize, exactly. is that you have people who are the A-list, and they make albums every two to three years. years. Yeah, right. And the albums are always taken seriously and always given a lot of attention and they've got a huge stand base to treat them like they're in an imperial phase. So, right, right. <laughs> now every artist with their stands is in a yeah. no, like a little micro imperial phase. <laughs> so it's much harder to to kind of step back and read the signal from the noise. Right, right, right. And I think Jackson kind of pioneered that. The sort of point of an imperial phase is that your market share as an artist is inflated during it, right. and it wasn't so much there before, and it isn't so much there afterwards. That there's this kind of enduring. You're always on a higher level than you were before you went into the phase. Right. And what Michael Jackson was doing was sort of something different. It was kind of like my records are such important events they sort of clear the decks of the rest of mm. pop. michael jackson's 80s run is almost like both like the blueprint and the exception for this in some ways yeah it's a fun tool but as an analytical tool it breaks down and i think michael jackson is one of the places it can break down just because he's too famous if you've made the best-selling album of all time the level of interest in the follow-up firstly it's impossible to follow up but secondly the level of interest in the follow-up is so much that from an attention point of view it doesn't matter that it's impossible to follow up i'm just looking at bad 
Chad's singles right now. And obviously in the US, it was the first and one of only two to this day album to have five number one singles. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, you look at these and you're like, I don't know. It's, I'm interested in like, I just can't stop loving you to me, not top shelf Michael Jackson single, but like a number one hit out of sheer interest, I would imagine. Then you've got Bad and the Way You Make Me Feel, classics, Man in the Mirror, all classics. Dirty Diana, arguably a classic too, probably not quite on the same level as the other ones. And then like, how do you classify the fact that like another part of me, the sixth single from this record, didn't hit the top 10 in the UK or the US? Like, is that a sign that this is not an Imperial phase? I think it's a sign they shouldn't be releasing a sixth sixth single from Bad. (laughs) You know. Once you're kind of pushing it so extremely, there's something like, how many does George Michael get off Faith? I think he had five. Yeah, he's got a lot. And that's an imperial phase, I think. Yeah, oh, for sure. Faith, father figures, I want your sex, what's the bad, one more try. That's got to be one. I think the other interesting part is that pop stars that have had really, really long and successful careers, but like, I can't quite think of an imperial phase for them. Like, does Beyonce have a notable imperial phase? Yeah, I think yes. But I think in a slightly unusual way, she has one and she has something very like it, where she dominates the conversation without being a commercial hit. Yeah, but if you don't have the commercial, can you have it? That feels incongruous to me. I think it's hard to think of someone who had the level of... Cultural saturation. Yeah, cultural saturation that Beyonce did, maybe starting with the self-titled going on to Lemonade. Right. And it fulfills sort of... It fulfills the three criteria that I put in the original piece, which is command, where you are stepping up your artistry to a new level. Permission, the public and the media want you to do it. It's not like, well, I'm stepping up my artistry and the people are like, okay, well, fine, you do you, but I don't particularly care. Nobody cares, right? Like Katy Perry's Witness or whatever being a good example of that. But like everyone was incredibly interested in what she was doing. And then it's got the thing where it defines you. And she has now defined herself as an icon of black excellence and a sort of social conscience in music and an artist in a way that I don't think she was seen as pre, certainly pre-Lemonade, possibly pre the self-titled. And I think that the way she did it is by understanding that the attention economy, starting in the the streaming era, the attention economy was starting to overtake the economy economy. And so with the surprise drop of the self-titled, she kind of created an incredibly huge moment in popular culture because nobody had done that kind of surprise release thing. It it then became incredibly, totally commonplace. And so did she render the sort of singles aspect, the hit singles aspect that we normally clock these things by erroneous by doing that essentially? Like, is that how we can sort of call this an imperial phase despite the fact that it only has one top 10 hit and none of the other singles were particularly huge at radio and like it's like a redefinition of it on some level on some level yeah because i think you do still get people who have the classic imperial phase like i would say that ariana grande had an imperial phase that year where thank you next came out thank you next yeah thank you next right and she yeah. put out the two albums in one year and... Right. That was another good kick-up moment because A, it took her four albums yeah. to get to that place, four or five albums to get, and B, the last one felt really big, but she had never had a number one single and then she came back with Thank You Next and like tossed off three of them or something like that, like right in a row. I agree, that felt like a little one. But that one was short too because it felt like by the time her follow-up record came out, Positions in 2020 did not feel like it had the same sort of like... Yeah, it didn't impact. It, it didn't have that. I mean, again, it feels like quite a traditional one in that she had the work rate, which you often don't get. I think it was putting out those two albums. Mm, right, 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 right. This is such an important part. Yeah. You know, I think Thank You Next is a really good example because it's the coming together of fascination of public interest in her like personal life related yeah. to Pete Davidson and then the breakup. That was like so huge because the first record, Sweetener, in 2019 was all about their love and then Thank You Next was a reflection of their breakup. So that was a really canny playing on the public interest. It was definitely like an artistic leap forward in every single imaginable way. And I don't know, I do think that we will look back and that will define her. I think that that yeah. era, that, especially the song Thank You Next, I think is her signature moment. And it has, of course, the other thing about the Imperial phase, which is that she could release some actual bad things, like Seven mm-hmm. Rings. There's no way there's, <laughs> there's no way Seven Rings gets to be number one anywhere. Drag it, Tom. <laughs> Drag Seven Rings to hell. 
To, to go back well, to Beyonce, yeah, I think what she was doing is maybe not an imperial phase in the traditional sense, but it's a way of having that kind of impact in a media sphere, which is all about takes and attention and mm. cultural impact and the kind of volume level more than the sales level. Now, maybe that doesn't count or shouldn't count or whatever, but I think it's sort of so much where stardom has gone. And particularly when you're dealing with long album release cycle. Here's my question about the Beyonce thing, because I do think it'd be interesting for us maybe to use that as a catalyst to talk about whether we need to redefine the term or if it's yeah, still yeah. possible to get one. Because here's what I'm wondering. Beyonce had to work so hard to make both of those eras work as well as they did, right? Like that was not something that she could just toss off. Like Lemonade, the amount that went in, the amount of thought that went into making that moment feels like it stands on its own more so than it's running off of some sort of giant plume of attention on her yeah like, no that's it a... generated its own moment due to just sheer ambition yeah like, in a way that maybe makes it feel sort of different to me than some of like what we think of as the imperial phase which is as you were saying if a classic imperial phase is like a great artist defining song like thank you next then leading into a more divisive song like seven rings yeah. but seven rings is even bigger than thank you next just because of the imperial phase let's say in 2016 beyonce had come back with something way less interesting like i'm not sure that she would have necessarily had that same level of attention no no just automatically yeah it may be that it isn't useful to think of that as an imperial phase in that case i think that they become rarer right because the collapse of monoculture and the rise of niche pop stardom and this is one thing that i think you're getting at that i'm interested in about the current crop of stars is i feel like in some ways pop stardom has become divorced from hit singles and i think beyonce's self-titled record was the catalyst moment for that but like there's almost like a group of artists that have hit songs and then there's a group of pop stars that are a cult of personality that are like can be somewhat divorced from hit singles like the people that come to mind to me are like billy eilish another great example of somebody that like of course has she had a number one song yes but billy eilish's career is not churning like pop stars of yore on like hit after hit after hit yeah, song yeah. it's more that she's a cult of personality with a very large cult and she can just sort of feed them her idiosyncratic music and like kind of sidestep the need for like classic runs of hit songs i mean right? i think uh, yeah i think it's still possible for a pop star to like have a moment and billy eilish absolutely had right. a moment had a moment where before it say you are an old out of touch guy like me before billy eilish has the moment <laughs> with bad guy um, bad guy Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it was Bury a Friend that was the first thing right. I heard by her. But she'd already been going in the circles where she was well known and getting attention for ages. And she has the moment, but it doesn't then turn into, OK, and now let's see what she does next. Now let's see what she does next. Now let's see what she does next. There's no kind of imperative on her to keep that up, to have a second bad guy. Right. Exactly. She doesn't need it. Yeah. So, yeah, no, she's a really good example. So is Ariana Grande the latest example you can think of of a classic imperial phase? Yeah, probably. I was having a think about this and I was trying to work out... Uh, you we're talking about people who've never had one. I don't think Taylor Swift has ever had one. Oh, interesting. That's a good example. In a sense that she kind of leveled up her fame and right. the 1989 era could have been it. I was going to say, doesn't that qualify? Yeah, sort of does, but I don't feel she's ever particularly got less famous. I mean, she's just taken over the entire top 10. But that feels fraudulent to me because of the way Billboard is doing that. It's right, okay. Feels wrong I, I don't know the details. Yeah. I know that it was a sort of moment of great despair when Ed Sheeran did the same in the UK. Well, it's, it's just this thing of like, they're trying trying to figure out how to account for the streaming ecosystem. Yeah. And it used to be that Billboard only clocked singles. So now you can chart with any song and people are out, you know, Taylor's massive fan base are out here streaming this record. So all of these songs are getting a lot of streams from her fans. But is that clocking the actual top 10 songs of the week? To me, it's changed the math a little bit. Like having track 10 on Taylor Swift's album chart at number eight feels like apples and oranges to having a number eight song in like 1984 or whatever yeah it's, yeah it's, it's, it's like a different idea it's i mean i think streaming has changed the ecosystem i think social media and stands have changed the ecosystem i think long album releases has and i also think the fact that pretty much all of the a-list pop stars around now either they started their careers either they were just starting their careers or they were already becoming established when i wrote the piece there's not a high level of turnover in the way you know in 2010 one direction were getting started drake was starting to get hot i remember writing about the weekend's first mixtape around maybe that was the right. year later taylor was already right. going 
Beyonce, obviously, and Harry Styles as part of One Direction. So there's less, it feels like there's less turnover, that pop stars have cracked Mm. how to become famous and how to just maintain that fame. Right, right, right. At a level which means that the kind of like surges and dips that an imperial phase represents become less relevant as a means of accounting and then because they take up so much attention because anything that any of these people do will just eat column inches everyone will have a take the first 24 hours after the taylor album comes out everyone has to have their opinion on it and write about it and such like and and then the stands go wild because someone's dropped the metacritic score by right (laughs) 0.2 decimals but it eats attention in a way that it becomes harder for someone on the next level to have that step up I think. Mm, I see what you're saying. Yeah, there's there's less pop stars, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, just point blank. There's less monocultural pop stars. We, you know, going back to what I was saying about Michael Jackson, like everyone had to get out of the way right. for Michael Jackson's album release. It kind of existed outside the general cycles of what people were paying attention to. And now all that A-list are operating in that way. The top tier of attention is being so eaten up by those people. It's much, much harder to have that step up. There isn't a monoculture for it to happen in. It's harder to kind of break break out and break through when it does it's more likely to be a moment so like bad guy is a moment yeah but not a classic imperial phase because otherwise the next few singles after that would have also been number one i think one thing that you've really helped illuminate for me and i want to return to the taylor thing in one second but is you almost have to toss out something shitty during that period for us to know whether you're having an imperial (laughs) yeah kind of yeah yeah yeah. it's sort of a litmus test because the thing that gets hard to piece apart is like are all of these singles just thriving on their own merit or are they thriving off of this giant plume of success from the artists? Yeah. Like it can be confusing. And so like, I feel like one way for us to know whether the Imperial phase is happening is like if they release something that's like truly crappy or like largely in retrospect seen as what the fuck was that, but it's still so big is one of the like few ways we can really note that this is going on. <laughs> like Otherwise it can be confusing. I would argue on Taylor that 1989 can qualify because reputation was a big in her realm it was still a huge album but like in taylor swift land was seen as a disappointment and was definitely a disappointment on the singles front i think actually taylor does represent an imperial phase because 1989 huge album right like with like five top five singles and then look what you made me do universally seen as like one of her worst songs ever debuts at number one sits there for four weeks like huge successful song so there you have a good example of like a song that probably without the jet engine of 1989 would not have been a successful single look what you made me do look what you made me do what you just made me do look what you just made me then kind of struggles with singles after that for a period of time yeah so maybe that does qualify i think that the two things i'd say is that first of all i think that the gap time-wise the gap feels right feels, the three-year feels gap big. between the, the three-year gap if she's right. still in the imperial right. phase in 2015 what's she doing i don't mm. know i don't know what she's doing you know i guess still right still like if the... she had like tossed off another album in 2015 yeah 1989 um, part two and then the other thing is that i think one of the reasons and this is credit to her actually one of the reasons that i was doubtful about whether she had one is that it's hard to say that 1989 has defined her in the public eye oh that's interesting what um, an interesting point because right, she has right, worked because right. like so we still hard. think of her as like we and also like she i could say she's equally defined by that era as she is by sort of like her country era or yeah. by like the folklore vibe or whatever like hard to know which is which all her efforts since reputation have been building the taylor as songwriter and i think it's worth totally i'd argue that maybe she's in a second one right now yeah, I mean, it could be that she's in another one. It could it could easily be. Because, I mean, Midnight's is, like, a really good example of something, like, I think it's been, like, critically, I, you know, people haven't been, like, flipping their lid over it necessarily, but it's her biggest debut sales week ever. Numerous songs seem huge off of it. Antihero is, like, definitely her biggest single in a really long time. Maybe she could be in the beginning of a second one now, maybe? I'm not sure. But I think she's kind of got to a point where she's cracked it. She's cracked. She, just as, you know, you get political parties who come to power and say, well, we We've done it. We've solved boom and bust. Right. And then that lasts until like a huge recession when it turns out that learn right. they have not solved boom and bust. But it really does feel like Taylor and her particularly, but that generation of stars, they're now releasing albums at 
enough of a distance. They're in control of the hype cycle in a way that they're not right. dependent on the kind of public part of the feedback loop. I see. So if we were going to redefine the term imperial phase for the modern era, like how would we constitute it? Like, would you change some of the definitions? Like, is there a way that we could, maybe we don't call it an imperial phase even, but is there a way we could sort of think about how we could clock one of these things now that the system and everything that goes into it feels structurally different than it did in the past yeah it, like I, I think probably depressingly the metaphors that you sort of reach for now are things like oligarchs and kind of <laughs> tech billionaires and stuff like one of the one of the problems with say elon musk is that even right. if even if twitter melts down and that whole thing like he becomes a laughing stock or whatever he's still one of the richest people in the world that isn't going to go away you've now got a kind of level of sort of oligarchic fame that you're seeing in right. pop where they've become famous like rihanna is still an a-list pop star despite the fact that she never releases music i mean she just has released some right. music you know and kind of everyone was like okay yeah that's nice but she's still like an unbelievably famous and primarily for being a musician for being a right i think and I, it's it's hard to imagine a point previously really where somebody like that could have just not done anything for right seven years and mm. still be as famous as Brianna is like if madonna had just stopped after Vogue, disappeared for seven yeah, years disappeared right. for seven years yeah. he would not have been kind of like they'd be very excited when Ray of Light came out and it turned out that she'd actually been making a great album and such like but it's inconceivable that she would have been like allowed to do it right there's a sense I guess that the fame economy is too top loaded and perhaps a little bit too broken now for things like the imperial phase to have as much purchase that isn't to say like you know unlike oligarchs or whatever pop stars they generally do bring happiness and delight to people and such like it's a very gloomy hopefully. metaphor uh, hopefully yeah. yeah there is a generation there are new people pushing Billie Eilish uh, more a Kate Bush figure speaking of someone who I think never had an imperial phase. I think people <laughs> will now attempt to claim that she did because obviously right. you're not all she's in one now. Her imperial phase is right now, actually. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> someone like Olivia Rodriguez, because she is very much a purely Gen Z, but also a traditional pop star. Yeah, totally. Who had major mainstream yeah. hits on her first record, a number of them. Yeah, she see, I, that was, that was going to be one of my last questions for you is like, who do we see as people that are primed to have one? Like, is there anybody we're looking at right now that could be in that spot. I think Olivia is a great example. I'm curious if there's anybody else that comes to mind. I have another one that's in my head, but Olivia seems like the type that she had two number one singles from her first record, one number two, lots of Grammy awards, record was huge. She's got the cred. She's got the eyes on her. If she could come back and have yeah. something that felt even bigger than that or kicked all of that into high gear, that would feel like one to me probably, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I think she could easily do it. One of the things that's also obviously happened is that streaming has kind of globalized pop to a degree. Right. That wasn't right. the case before. Right. So I don't know enough about, say, Bad Bunny, um, who is, like, right. you know, I know, I know, no, that, I know that he is the most streamed artist on yes, the planet. he's huge. But I don't yes, know whether that's because he's in an imperial phase. I don't know what that would even look like. It's all really confusing yeah. with this giant nicheness of these things. I think that's where we're both kind of like stumbling over this concept is because I do think the imperial phase does feel tied to the idea of a very prominent monoculture. Yeah. And pop stardom was so much the center of monoculture for so long that it, this worked. It was like if Madonna had a hit song, every single person on earth heard that song. Like there is nobody on earth who did not hear Vogue, Like a Prayer, yeah, Express yeah. Yourself, Like a Virgin, Papa Don't Preach. Like it could be everybody from the youngest to the oldest to the farthest remote village in Africa, whatever the fuck it was, like you heard those songs. Now artists can be huge and sustain huge careers in silos that's the thing that makes this so difficult to me it's like if you go to billy eilish's show her five yeah. nights at the forum right everybody there the hundred thousand los angeles residents who attended those shows knows every single word to every single one of those songs but then you venture one step outside of the billy eilish silo and there's plenty of people that don't know any of those songs so it's yeah. really different in that way to me it's not like thriller it's not no, like madonna it's not yeah, even definitely. like you know it's not even like 1989 or something even more recent than that it's like these artists are like giant massive cult figures in this way that they're both 
as you said, like able to sustain bigger careers for longer. They've learned from past mistakes. They know how to stay in the conversation, whatever the things that you were talking about. But at the same time, they don't need to saturate every corner of life in the same way that they were able, yeah. or they're not even able to in the way that pop stars of your were. So I think that that's where this concept gets a little bit tricky. In most previous eras, you could look at, say, Doja Cat and right. say Great example. her last year Huge. is an imperial phase right. except for the right. fact that she hasn't broken into that top tier and it's sort of like i know who she is because right. i am a Cute pop it. fan and that most people my age will have be what who and right most people right. even 10 or 15 years younger than me would be like what who in a way that i don't think was yeah, true right. of taylor swift even totally, a decade totally. ago and, and, and absolutely wasn't true of madonna that's where there's ceiling the ceiling of fame that it's much more difficult mm-hmm. to break through even if you have your step up year which she definitely yeah, did exactly the one that comes to mind for me that's a possibility is dua lipa because i think dua lipa had a surprisingly huge second album yeah. that was like way bigger than I would have expected and had the sort of monocultural saturation like levitating and don't start now felt like classic hits to me in the sense that they were everywhere they were cool she had a level of credibility with that album that people didn't see coming and the music felt like broad and accessible and could be played everywhere from a streaming playlist to Target yeah. to CVS yeah, yeah. to whatever and I think if she were to come back with a record that somehow built on that and was even bigger that could maybe be a moment for her. She has a huge amount of goodwill. And yes. I think, yeah, it could be. But this is, I think, what, uh, one of the issues with the kind of globalized thing that previously, like the Pet Shop Boys did not have a global imperial phase. They didn't have hits all around the world. Right. But they unquestionably had an imperial phase within the UK where they just were all over the shop in ways that seemed right. sort of uncanny, given who right. they were and the kind of things that they were doing. So someone like Doja Cat, someone like Dua Lipa, I think that we're kind of having to measure them to a yardstick where within a global music business, where we're expecting them to meet this criteria of globalness. Mm. And I think that actually, if you look at the kind of local scenes, they're still happening. They're happening more often. They're happening all the time. Well, not all the time, but they're happening quite a lot. And I suspect they're happening off our radar, partly because we're looking at the kind of Anglophone global pop business sure, where sure, you're having sure, to compete sure. with right. taylor no i mean i'm sure there's k-pop acts that are having imperial phases yeah yeah right yeah now. yeah and they've yeah. been i mean they've right. got to compete with bts which is no shakes if you're blackpink maybe you're having one if you're bizarrap down in right. argentina or right. chile with his rap stuff that's right. getting like gazillions of views you're having one right but it's invisible to us right. because we've got this globalized view of the pop world. So maybe as our wrap-up question yeah. here, this was so much fun. I literally could run through every pop star with you and debate what the Imperial phase was, but I'm going to resist because I don't want to take up too much of your time. No, no, it's but okay. is there an Imperial phase that we haven't talked about yet that is just a pet fave of yours that you just think is either a great example of one or a particularly interesting or exciting one? Anything we haven't touched on that just feels like a pet fave of yours? Americans now know who ABBA are. I'm yes. not I'm not sure they've been aware of the extent to which the ABBA imperial phase was like a, yes. a planet conquering phenomenon. We covered phenomenon. this on our episode about them, about sort of how they were indomitable in Europe and more fluky hit here during that. Yeah, time. yeah. So like ABBA are a really good one because they emerge by winning the Eurovision, which is usually right. the kiss of death for a career. Sure. It would be very interesting <laughs> to see if Maniskin can have an imperial yeah. phase. They're probably the only rock band actually who could do it. Celine also was able to yeah, parlay Eurovision um, into a successful career. But anyways, they appear and they're Eurovision faves and they, that single obviously does brilliantly all around the world because it's great. Then they kind of drop off and suddenly they come back with SOS was the right. kickoff and become massive, massive stars everywhere except the US. And then they start making records that even the US had. Like even, I think Dancing Queen is their, yes. is their hit. Our, I think their sole number one yeah. uh, hit in the US, if I'm correct. Even the US has to acknowledge the Dancing Queen. Dancing right. Queen is kind of the peak of the imperial phase. And then much like the Pet Shop Boys with Domino Dancing, what ultimately ends it, they put out great stuff. They put out not so great stuff. They can do no wrong. And then actually where they started to drop off was Voulez Vous, where they went disco. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in much the same way that ultimately it was house and the evolution of dance music, which the Pets Boys absolutely loved, but they couldn't adapt to. That right. sort of ended the imperial phase for them. All right. That's a good one. I yeah. really like that one. What's your favorite ABBA song from that imperial phase that we could send the show out on? I think SOS, because it's the one that sparks it. It's, yeah. the, it's the one where that classic piano heavy, these sort of gorgeous melodic European pianos on top of what's still basically a kind of glam rock 
backing come in and yeah. it just it defines the ABBA sound it's a massive level up everything they do for the next three four years is basically based on it so yeah, yeah SOS perfect song yeah alright let's go out with SOS I'm never sick of hearing SOS <laughs> could listen to that song every day of my life Tom Ewing thank you so so much for being on the show thank you And now here is a clip from our Patreon episode about Britney's blackout with Dunzo's Troy McKeady. If you enjoy this, head over to patreon.com slash poppantheon to subscribe, or you can hit the link in the show notes of this episode. I think that one of the things that makes the album so special is the fact that it it had everything working against it. Yeah. You know, and the fact that it is like this like gym, this like diamond that came out of all of this like trauma Uh and this like wild time. It almost doesn't make sense that this album is so polished and so great. But then Mm -hmm. the thing about it that is so good is that it does perfectly match with that time period. Exactly. Exactly. This is important. If this was a really polished, like, pop album, a really, like... Bright. Yeah, like, Britney. Like, a bright, happy pop album, it wouldn't make any sense. But it's the fact that it is so seedy and dark. And it does take you back to this dark mindset that she was Mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. I think that adds to, like, the lore. I agree. I think that's really key to understanding the magic of this record is it's perhaps the most honest reflection of the complexity and dynamism of Britney's like interior life of any of her records, like way more so than I think when she has overtly gestured towards those things by making like emotional ballads. I mean, not that I don't love every time, but like, you know, there's kind of the more like cliche gestures that pop stars make when they, you know, and Britney's been in this a lot where it's like, this is my most personal album yet. But as you said, the seediness, the ice, the combativeness of it, the pushing back on the celebrity narrative, the voracious sexuality of the entire thing in almost mm-hmm. like an overpowering, almost mildly terrifying way. Like, you know, sometimes I think of Give Me More in that context. Like part of Give Me More's dark, demonic energy is that yeah. it is about, oh, you've sort of like turned me into this child whore in your imagination. Yeah. Well, like here it is, baby. Like I'm a bottomless pit. It's like a commentary yes. on that in some ways. And like, how scary is that to look into the pits of that or like what you think you've sort of formed me as in your head. This record to me is weirdly, even though it's like this icy dance pop album, feels like her most honest piece of work ever in a way that I think is why it is continually fascinating beyond just being like a uniformly strong set of electropop songs. I'm so happy that you brought up the sexuality of the album because it's overt. It's a different kind of sexuality than Britney had ever explored. It drops the coquettish thing of her earlier work and goes way more for something truly almost scary. Yeah. It's a real like Brigitte Nielsen style of being sexual. It's very aggressive. (laughs) Uh You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's, Totally. It's like it's Grace Jones sexy. It's intense mm-hmm. and it's combative. And like you said, it's a reflection of this sort of built up coquettish is she isn't she thing. And this album is like, no, babe, I am. I'm fucking yeah. like uh-huh. hard mm-hmm. in public. Mm-hmm. Many people. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, and we're not 100%. sober. Like, it's a reflection of all of those years of having all of these people sort of toying with her sexuality. And now it yeah. just feels really yeah. over and in your face. And it's like kind of made to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. In the same way that in public, she had ripped the veneer off of the pop princess in mm-hmm. her sort of what was then thought of as her meltdown or, but I don't know how to frame what to call it now. This record yeah. rips that veneer off musically in the sense of yes. like taking the implicit seediness of watching a 16 year old Britney like wink and nod with her shirt tied up and being mm. like, nah, like we're taking out all of the subtext and making it text here in this way that is completely fascinating. I know it's- Now, 
Not to mention the sort of forward-thinking nature and incredibly influential sonic universe that this record creates. And I had a fascinating conversation when we recorded our Justin Timberlake episode because at the time, this was just after Future Sex Love Sound. These records share a lot of sonic identity together. They share Mm -hmm. Danger, the producer in common. They share the sort of transition that pop music was in more broadly from hip-hop and B aesthetics of Jennifer Lopez and Ashanti, etc. into the sort of icy dance pop of the 2010s, Gaga, Rihanna, the whole Mm -hmm. EDM movement. This record is the linchpin. This, Future Sex Love Sounds, Loose by Nelly Furtado, you know, they're all swimming in this pool. But of all of those records, even though Future Sex Love Sound felt like the juggernaut of that time and Blackout felt more like a cult classic, I think Blackout has stood out in terms of its influence and the way that it actually like helped turn the screw on that sonic transition is now held up in higher esteem, even than a Future Sex Love Sound is at this time, even though at the time that record seemed like a much bigger deal. Yeah, but I 1000% agree with you. Yeah, I, I would never even really think to compare those albums, but it's so true. Like, yeah. there is no better comparison. And mm-hmm. I think where Justin has his own sort of, you know, he was working against being a former boy band member, and now that's become the blueprint of how you leave a boy band. Every boy band member wants their Justin Timberlake mo- moment, you know, mm-hmm. where like they cross over and basically black people take them seriously. That's like what they all dream. <laughs> you know yeah Um, but it's such a good comparison i think Mm -hmm. it's interesting when you look at the music that did come after this time this album felt more rebellious i think than future sex love sounds oh for sure that's true was very head tilty like Mm -hmm. i remember the first time hearing some of these songs and they were like demos when they had leaked yeah. And I was like, this is, like, really weird. Like, this, al- yeah. this album is wild. Like, I like it, but this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, it's experimental in a way that feels yeah. like it didn't mind that you wouldn't maybe understand it for a little while. A hundred percent. I mean, everything from its deployment of dubstep before that was a commonly used pop parlance on Freak Show. 10 p.m. to 4, and I came to hit the floor. What you knew before, but if you don't, then now you know. Yo, tonight I'm about to mash, make them other chicks so mad. I'm about to shake my ass, snatch that boy. To this sort of moaning, groaning, disembodied male voice that is the chorus of Get Naked, I Got a Plan. Yeah. <laughs> To give me more or a piece of me, the sort of slurred oh, yeah. full robot. If you enjoyed this clip, head over to patreon.com slash poppantheon to sign up for bonus episodes, access to Discord, and so, so much more.